Welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. This is a podcast intended to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum published by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm host Ben James, and every week I lead you through the lessons in a way that is intended to help you better understand the scriptures, make you think about important questions, and strengthen your faith in Jesus Christ. You can also find the video version of these lessons on my YouTube channel, titled 29th Floor Sunday School. If you find these lessons useful, please consider becoming a subscriber. Enjoy the lesson. Hello, welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. Glad you can join me from my office in central Hong Kong as we together study the Come Follow Me lesson for June 15th through 21st. Today we'll be discussing Alma chapters 13 through 16. Well, here in Hong Kong, it's uh, we've enjoyed a, a somewhat quiet, kind of a normal week. I'm not aware of any new cases, although I hear uh, there's a recent flare-up of coronavirus in Beijing and people up there are concerned about uh, that city potentially going back into lockdown. We'll have to see what happens. I understand the U.S. is undergoing a second wave, but fortunately, Hong Kong has been pretty uh, has been pretty safe as far as uh, coronavirus goes, uh, at least for the past week. Um, we did have a few new cases uh the prior week, and as a result of that, even though we were on schedule to actually resume church meetings tomorrow, uh, that has been pushed back for a few weeks, unfortunately. So still doing the home Sunday thing, uh, regretfully. But other than that, at least we've been peaceful. A few protests, but nothing crazy, uh, at least certainly not when compared to uh, what's going on in the United States. Well, with this week's lesson, we will be covering the complete destruction of the city of Ammonihah. And as I mentioned last week, you know, I have this is a difficult story for me. Um, scripture has a lot of stories in it. Uh, you know, scriptures are not written as doctrinal treatises. Uh, there's a few books that are that way. Certainly the, the Pauline epistles take on that format. Doctrine and Covenants uh, tends to be more you know, doctrinally focused, hence the name. Uh, but certainly the Old Testament, much of the New Testament, including the Savior's life and the Book of Mormon, is written as stories with, uh, with doctrine, uh, doctrinal highlights kind of thrown in in between. And I think in order to understand the scriptures and get out of them what we are meant to, it's essential to unpack the stories and understand what's going on here. And, and that's, of course, what I attempt to do in these lessons. Hopefully I'm successful. There's many other resources out there that will help you uh, augment your scripture study and help you to better understand and place these stories in their uh, historical as well as doctrinal uh, context. Uh, but, you know, it, it's the question then becomes, why this story? Of all the Nephite stories that Mormon could have drawn from as he was making his collection, putting them together uh, in the large plates uh, in a way that would eventually be translated and come forth in, in the form of the Book of Mormon that we have. Why, why this story? Uh, and, and I think that's something that we need to consider, why this story is one that would be included. Certainly it's meant as a, as a warning to the wicked uh, as the city of Ammonihah is, is destroyed. And I guess my biggest challenge with this story, as I've mentioned last week, is that, you know, why, why did this have to happen? Why, 
was this even necessary? We know that it starts off with Alma going to the city. He's rejected and he leaves. Then an angel comes down and says, no, Alma, you need to go back. As a result of him going back, he meets uh, Amulek and they preach together. And that's where we pick up now is in the middle of their, of their discussions, uh, of, the, of, the, of, the, uh, of the discussions that they have with the people of Ammonihah. Uh, but we'll see today, eventually, that results in uh, destruction. Uh, destruction of, of many, the loss of many lives, both innocents and those uh, not so innocent. Um, and it, it seems like this possibly could have been prevented had the angel simply not come. Now, that's obviously me not understanding the full picture, just kind of uh, completely speculating. Um, and, you know, we'll see the way in which they were destroyed. That seems kind of inevitable and certainly had nothing to do with with the angel coming back if they were a wicked city and the lord eventually destroyed them then that likely would have happened anyway uh but but this story certainly leaves in my mind a, a lot of question marks and by me asking these questions i hope i hope you realize that i'm not by any means questioning what what happened or why this story is here um i think for those of you that have been listening for a while i'm i'm not a big fan of trying to uh, search for every historical detail, trying to verify the veracity, the historicity of these stories, trying to confirm whether or not they actually happen. You know, to be completely honest, this could be a completely fabricated story and, you know, completely made up and it really wouldn't change its value to me. Uh, you know, think of, uh, for example, the story of the Good Samaritan. We know that's not a true story. We know there is never a man uh, walking uh, from uh, Jerusalem to Jericho, who got uh, who got beaten up, but that doesn't change the beauty of the story, and that doesn't change the lessons that we are go that we should take away from the story. Uh, and and I think the same goes with any story in the Book of Mormon, whether or not they actually happened to me, and I do believe that they that they did happen. Um, I will recognize that you know the the process through which we have the record that has come about. There's a lot that we don't know about that. You know, it was written down, I'm assuming most of these were written down by Alma himself. We have some of these sermons that seem to uh, indicate, uh, for example, chapters five and seven, indicating that he himself uh, wrote down the stories. Those sermons were preserved, whether or not they were transcribed by, by scribes subsequently. And then, you know, 500 years later, which is a long time. I mean, 500 years is the time between uh, you know, Columbus setting sail and now, essentially. So an enormous gap between Alma recording these things and then Mormon further uh, recording these things. <clears throat> uh, but, but Alma, you know, records them, Mormon collects them. Uh, certainly Mormon does a lot of uh, editing, editorializing as in order to produce the product that we have now. So this is a long way of saying, you know, these stories are here for a reason. Whether or not they're completely true, I have, I have uh, or at least the way that they're depicted is exactly how it happens. I would imagine if you went and spoke with someone from the city of Ammonihah, whether or not this happened, they would probably say, well, no, that's not exactly how I remember it. But it doesn't matter because that's how it's told to us by Mormon, uh, you know, through the eyes of Alma. That's the story that has been passed down. And so the question is, why should it be passed down? What are the lessons we're going to take from this story? And that is... Uh, what I would like to focus on 
as, as we go through here today, is trying to uh, extrapolate what are some of the lessons that the Lord would have us take from this really horrific story. A story that, you know, starts with Alma returning uh, because he's told by an angel to do so and results in women and children being burned because they uh, believe that message and then the entire city is destroyed and nobody goes to the land again for many years because the stench of the dead bodies is so bad. You know, clearly not a happy story, but it's here. It's been preserved. What are we to take from it? Uh, so with that kind of as a, as a long introduction, uh, let's jump in. If you recall last week as we finished chapter 12, Alma was in the middle of a discourse to, uh, it seems to be in some ways targeted at a certain Zeezrom, uh, who was one of the chief uh, instigators, questioners of Alma and Amulek. And he seems to be undergoing this starting the mighty change of heart process that Alma uh, talked about. He's, he's starting to question his own beliefs as Alma is teaching him about uh, death and, and resurrection and agency. You know, essentially the whole, the whole plan of salvation, Zeezrom's starting to wonder whether or not the intellectual underpinnings of his own life, you know, the, the framework, the foundation that he's built his life upon, he's starting to question whether or not that's, that's actually right, whether or, not, or whether or not he needs to uh, build his, rebuild his life upon a, a different framework. And so that's, what, that's where we pick up, is Alma is specifically targeting him. And let's, uh, the last chapter, uh, sorry, the last verse of the last chapter that we read in the last lesson uh, is essentially Alma's kind of uh, invitation where we left, left, uh, left off with. So chapter 12, verse 37, which states, And now, my brethren, seeing we know these things, and they are true, let us repent and harden not our hearts, that we provoke not the Lord our God to pull down his wrath upon us, and these his second commandments, which he has given unto us. But let us enter into the rest of God, which is prepared according to his word. Alma's invitation to Zeezrom specifically and to everyone saying, come on guys, let's, let's do better. Let's repent. Let's call upon the Lord. Let's make the changes that we are supposed to make in our lives so that we can enjoy uh, the rest of the Lord. And last week, we, we shared a, a quote from uh, Joseph F. Smith that talked about what that might mean, um, which I think is right in terms of, uh, you know, not being so concerned, blown about by different winds of doctrine, but we're certain uh, in our testimonies because we've made up our mind, we have that faith, and even though we don't have all the answers, uh, our faith is secure. Uh, but I think the rest of the Lord is also uh, synonymous for returning to the presence of God and many of the verses that we'll uh, confront in chapters uh, 13 as well. So let, uh, with that, let's go ahead and read uh, verse 1 in chapter 13. And again, my brethren, I would cite your minds forward to the time when the Lord God gave these commandments unto his children. And I would that ye should remember that the Lord God ordained priests after his holy order, which was after the order of his son, to teach these things unto his people. So there's this plan that Alma taught in chapter 12, a plan of redemption, a plan of repentance, uh, a plan of uh, death and resurrection, uh, a plan of salvation. And Alma in this verse says, all right, now the Lord has prepared this plan, and now he needs to make it known unto his children so that they can benefit from that plan. And we talked about in chapter 12 how he uses angels to deliver that plan 
uh, to certain uh, men and women. But once it's delivered to them, he, he can't use that method to deliver it to everyone. Otherwise, uh, there would be a, a, a deficit of agency under the plan. So in order to preserve that agency, he can't send angels to declare the plan of salvation to everyone. He, he has a few select men and women that, based on their exceeding faith, as we're about to learn, receive the plan. But then they are to take the plan. They are to inform others about the plan. They're to take the plan and, and share it with the rest of the world so that everyone can benefit from the knowledge of the plan of salvation. And that's verses 2 and 3. And those priests were ordained after the order of his son in a manner that thereby the people might know in what manner to look forward to his son for redemption. And this is the manner after which they were ordained, being called and prepared from the foundation of the world according to the foreknowledge of God on account of their exceeding faith and good works, in the first place being left to, to choose good or evil. Therefore they, have chosen, they having chosen good and exercising exceedingly great faith, are called with the holy calling, yea, with that holy calling which was prepared with and according to a preparatory redemption for such. So here we get details as to how uh, men and women uh, are called after the holy order of God. And I'm intentionally using women here too, because when we're talking, we are talking about the priesthood here. That's clear. And the priesthood is the priesthood after the holy order of the Son of God, as we learn in Doctrine and Covenants. Uh, and we'll learn later more about Melchizedek. But, but when we're talking about priesthood here, we're doing so in a context more of the, more than, than more of the narrow uh, way in which we as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints often uh, view priesthood. It's more than just a force uh, through which the Church operates and is organized. But rather, we see it is an order. That's what it's called here. It's an order of God. It is an order that is used to bring people to God. And that's, of course, what everything is all about, is helping people return to the presence of God or helping others enter into the rest of God or the rest of the Lord, uh, as it's stated here. And so initially, we have individuals that are uh, called of God and given their testimonies, and then it becomes their job to help others learn of uh, the gospel, to obtain their testimonies. And so the manner in which individuals are called to the holy order or to the holy priesthood is the same manner we see in which we are called to salvation. And that's what we just read in verses 2 and 3. Uh, in verse 2, thereby the people might know in what manner to look forward to his son for redemption. Okay, and what's the manner? Verse chapter, uh, sorry, verse 3, and this is the manner after which they are ordained. Prepared from the foundation of the world according to the foreknowledge of God on account of their exceeding faith and good works. In the first place, being left to choose good and evil. And after choosing good, because of their exceeding faith, enter into the holy calling uh, which was prepared for them. So it's the same process, whether it is the process of receiving this holy order, being led to, uh, to Christ uh, through this holy order, or whether it's actually returning to the presence of God. It's all done based, based on this same order, based on this same plan, based on the same requirements. And that is, 
exceeding faith based on the agency that has been preserved for us. And then this process, this plan, this order has been prepared since the foundation of the world. uh, Verses 4 to 6, let's see if we can make it uh, a a little clearer. And thus they have been called to this holy calling on account of their faith, while others would reject the Spirit of God on account of the hardness of their hearts and blindness of their minds. Well, if it had not been for this, they might have had as great privilege as their brethren. Or in fine, in the, fine, in the first place, they were on the same standing with their brethren. Thus, this holy calling being prepared from the foundation of the world for such as would not harden their hearts, being in and through the atonement of the only begotten Son who was prepared. And thus being called by this holy calling and ordained unto the high priesthood of the holy order of God to teach his commandments unto the children of men that they also might enter into his rest. Okay, so again, this order, this plan is that there's certain individuals that by exercising faith enter into this order. And they receive their testimonies, they receive their witnesses, and then they come unto Christ. And the reason that they come unto Christ isn't because the Lord foreordained them or that the Lord chose them or that because they are special. It's because of their agency. It's because they chose to exercise that faith. And and he even goes out out of his way to state this. Verse 5, in the first place, they were on the same standing with their brethren. Everybody starts off equal. We all have the chance to progress. We all have the chance to take this holy order upon ourselves. We all have the chance to enter into relationships with Christ by entering into this order or receiving ordinances and entering into covenants, which also have a very you know, uh, important element of order in them. There's an order in which we enter into the covenants. They're not just randomly made. We don't get to select the terms of the covenants. They are appointed by God in accordance with his holy order. But whether or not we will receive those ordinances or enter into the covenants, it has nothing to do with any predisposition of God. It's all about us. It's all about the decisions that we make. It's all about in the way that we exercise our faith. Okay, now verses 10 through 13. Now, as I said, concerning the holy order or this high priesthood, there were many who were ordained and because and became high priests of God. And it was on account of their exceeding faith and repentance and their righteousness before God, they choosing to repent and work righteousness rather than to perish. Therefore, they were called after this holy order and were sanctified and their garments were washed white through the blood of the lamb. Now they, after being sanctified by the Holy Ghost, having their garments made white, being pure and spotless before God, could not look upon sin, save it were with abhorrence. And there were many, exceedingly great many, who were made pure and entered into the rest of the Lord their God. Now, my brethren, I would that ye should humble yourselves before God and bring forth fruit, meat for repentance, that ye may also enter into that rest. Okay, so this holy order, the way in which this order works is those who are called after the holy order initially, those who receive this holy order, those who receive the ordinances and enter into covenants with Christ, are then obligated to lead others to Christ. 
It's a process. It's a social process. It's the process of those who come unto Christ, then reach out their hand and bring others to Christ. And then as we come unto Christ, Christ reaches out his hand and leads us to God. In other words, this is not something that we can do by ourselves. The plan of salvation is not something that you can just concoct yourself. The ordinances don't just magically appear in your mind. The priesthood authority to administer those ordinances is not something that you can take upon yourself. They have to receive, be received through God. This is why it was so critical for the church of Jesus Christ to be restored, so that that priesthood authority could be restored, so that that order could be restored, so that those who have their testimony, so that those that know Christ and have entered into covenants with him, well, first of all, so that those that desire to enter into covenants have the ability to do so. And then once they've entered into covenants, they lead others to Christ as well. So it begins with us learning the gospel from other people, having the Spirit confirm it to us. Then through others, we receive those ordinances. And because of those ordinances, we enter into a covenant with Christ. And then Christ leads us back to the rest of God, back to the presence of the Father. So we can see this is, again, a, a social uh, covenant, a social plan. It's not something that you can do by your own. We are dependent upon other people. Not only are we dependent upon Jesus Christ to lead us back to God the Father, but we are also dependent upon other people to lead us to Jesus Christ. We need the help of other individuals, their faith, their testimonies, their stories, their priesthood authority so that we can receive ordinances. These are all absolutely essential for us if we are to be brought unto Christ. Of course, Christ will reach out. Christ will call us. Christ will touch us individually. But the lesson of the priesthood is that that's also not something, getting all the way to Christ is not something that we can do on our own. I'm reminded of a, I had a BYU uh, college professor uh, when I took some scripture classes uh, named Roger Keller. Uh, he was actually a religion professor at BYU. And I heard a talk that he gave uh, at a symposium that was done in Washington, D.C., uh, commemorating the, the 200th uh, birthday of the prophet Joseph Smith. And in there, he told a story about his own conversion. He had been a, a high-ranking minister in another church, uh, when he learned about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You know, and of course, for someone in that position to join the church is, is a difficult decision. But he said what ultimately made his choice easier was when he came to the realization that by joining the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, he would be able to receive more authority, more priesthood authority than he previously had to lead people further back to Jesus Christ, further back to God than he had in his old church. And so based on that, he said, look, my previous church took me this far, but if I join the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I can go even further and I can help others go further as well. And so I recall he made the funny comment that, you know, once he joined the church, others were 
you know, would celebrate, you know, would congratulate him upon, you know, finding the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he would always respond saying, well, shucks, I've known the gospel of Jesus Christ my entire life. But there were certain important things that I was missing. Uh, chief among them was the fullness of priesthood authority, or at least the priesthood authority to take people further than I previously had. But I, I recall, if, if, if I remember correctly, his view was that, you know, I had authority to do what I was doing when I was a minister of another church. And what other authority could that be than authority from God or priesthood authority, if you will? He was leading people to Christ as a, as a leader of another church. And, you know, all of our brothers and sisters that are out there leading people to God, encouraging them to do good, whether it's in, you know, another Christian faith, whether it's in uh, Judaism or any other religion, anyone that is leading others closer to Christ, bringing them closer to God, encouraging them to do good, is exercising priesthood authority in a way. But what's unique about our church is that we have the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we have the authority to take people further than they could otherwise go. And so those of us that have received those ordinances and have entered into those higher covenants that are only available because of the restoration, we have that obligation to, of course, not only keep the covenants that we have made, but to help others go uh, as far as they can as well. Uh, let's read verses 16 through 18 now. Now these ordinances were given after this manner, that thereby the people might look forward on the Son of God, it being a type of his order, or it being his order, and, that, and this that they might look forward to him for remission of their sins, that they might enter into the rest of the Lord. Now this Melchizedek was a king over the land of, of Salem, and his people had waxed strong in iniquity and abomination, Yea, they had all gone astray. They were full of all manner of wickedness. But Melchizedek, having exercised mighty faith and received the office of the high priesthood according to the holy order of God, did preach repentance unto his people. And behold, they did repent. And Melchizedek did establish peace in the land in his days. Therefore he was called the Prince of Peace, for he was the King of Salem, and he did reign under his father. So ordinances are given so that we can better understand the order. Again, ordinances and order, these two concepts go together. They are critical to each other. And so Melchizedek instituted ordinances or provided ordinances, provided this order to the people of the city of Salem where he was. And this, like the city of Ammonihah, Salem was a wicked city. They were not doing what they were supposed to. But because of the faith of this Melchizedek, he established the order of God in that city and that he preached repentance to them. They humbled themselves. They heard the message. They repented. And then he provided the ordinances to them. He brought them to Christ. And then that city, uh, and then Christ brought the people of that city uh, to God. And they entered into the rest of the Lord. So we as priesthood bearing members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, those that have entered into the order of God or those that have received holy ordinances. It is our job to not only keep those covenants ourselves, but to help others come as well. And you can see, it, it seems like Alma here is, you know, pleading with the people of Ammonihah. You know, Melchizedek did it to his people. 
they were able to change. They were willing to repent and they became a holy city. You guys can do the same. Just repent. Just come unto Christ. I'm coming here with priesthood authority, with my testimony, with the ordinances that I've received, and I'm extending that same invitation to you. Come unto Christ, and then Christ will take you back to the rest of the Lord. And that's what Alma is pleading these people to do. Just as Melchizedek exercised faith and brought the city of Salem to God so that they could enjoy peace, and of course Salem itself means peace, so too is Alma pleading with the city of Ammonihah, make the same change and we can have the same blessings as well. And so, and he's doing this with an eye knowing that Christ's coming is not far away. But I love his attitude in verse 25, where Alma says, And now we only wait to hear the joyful news declared unto us by the mouth of angels of his coming. For the time cometh we know not how soon, would to God that it might be in my day, but let it be sooner or later, in it I will rejoice. I love Alma's attitude here. We know Christ is coming soon. We don't know exactly when that's going to be. Alma says, I hope it's while I'm still around, but whether or not it is, I'm going to rejoice whenever that happens. And what a wonderful attitude of faith that is. I think all of us can, can take as an example. Whatever blessing that you're seeking uh, for yourself, whatever blessing that it is that you hope actually happens, a righteous blessing, whether it be the blessing of a temple marriage, whether it be the blessing of uh, repentance or forgiveness or seeing the face of God or concern for a family member that has gone astray. You know, this attitude of Alma says, you know what? My faith is not bound by time. I'm not going to set time limits on how far my faith goes. I hope, it, I hope these things I'm hoping for, that I'm praying for, these righteous desires happen sooner rather than later. But whether it's sooner or later, I'm going to rejoice either way. So I love, uh, love Alma's attitude here. And then we close this chapter with his invitation to the city of Ammonihah, verses 27 through 29. And now, my brethren, I wish from the inmost part of my heart, yea, with great anxiety, even unto pain, that ye would hearken unto my words and cast off your sins and not procrastinate the day of your repentance, but that ye would humble yourselves before the Lord and call on his holy name and watch and pray continually that ye may not be tempted above that which ye can bear and thus be led by the Holy Spirit, becoming humble, meek, submissive, patient, full of love and all long suffering, having faith on the Lord, having a hope that ye shall receive eternal life, having the love of God always in your hearts that ye may be lifted up at the last day and enter into his rest. Again, this idea of entering into the rest of the Lord, which I think Alma speaking here is using synonymously with the idea of returning to the presence of God. You can see this beautiful invitation from Alma. 11.27, how descriptive is he is. Anxiety even unto pain. He loves these people. More than anything, he wants them. He feels the desire for them to repent to change, to become better than they currently are, to come unto Christ after the order of God, to enter into those into covenants, to receive ordinances, that they too might enjoy the blessings of the gospel, that they can come unto Christ so that Christ can take us back to the Father. That is the order of God, and that is what Alma is pleading for here. Now we turn to chapter 14, and as 
heartfelt and as beautiful as the lessons in chapter 13 are, as full of hope and, and promise and uh, expectations of salvation, chapter 14 is the exact opposite. Chapter 14 is, is, is a disaster. Uh, it's a nightmare. It's the worst thing that Alma could have imagined. And we'll talk about uh, how you know, some of the pain that Alma almost certainly felt, and, and, uh, and, and, uh, and his companion uh, as well, Amulek. Uh, my goodness, the, the pain that these uh, incredible men must have felt because of the events in chapter 14 are really beyond all description. So uh, starting in verse 1, it says that many believed Alma and Amulek, and they started repenting, and they started studying their scriptures, and they started to make changes. But the majority of the people uh, were angry at them. And that's because of the plainness of their call to repentance. They didn't hold back. They told them, if you don't repent, you are going to be destroyed. Your city will be destroyed and you will uh, basically be in hell in fire and brimstone uh, forever. And Alma used some very strong words uh, in his discussions with them. And we'll see the concept of fire and brimstone was, was prevalent among them. That seems to be the concept that they really uh, latched onto. But, but these people were very, very angry because Alma and Amulek had the audacity to tell them, you need to make some changes. You need to repent. And we're telling you this for your own good. Uh, but in verse 5, it's clear that they either miss the message or they don't want to hear the message. Uh, in verse 5, as they take Alma and Amulek before... Uh, before their legal tribunals. Uh, this is the argument that they make. And the people went forth and witnessed against them, testifying that they had reviled against the law and their lawyers and judges of the land, and also of all the people that were in the land, and also testified that there was but one God, that he should send his son among, among the people, but he should not save them. And many such things did, they, did the people testify against Alma and Amulek. Now this was done before the chief judge of the land. And so you can see the, the way in that they twist what Alma and Amulek said. Again, either they didn't understand it, which I think is very possible, um, or they're intentionally twisting it as well. But this idea that there would only be one God and he will not save the people. He will not save them. Now, uh, you know, question here whether or not they're saying, remember when they were questioning uh, Amulek, they said, will God come and save his people in their sins? And, and Amulek said, no, he's not going to save you in your sins. If you repent, he'll save you. Um, so either the people misunderstood that and they said, well, he said God's not going to save anybody. Or he was, or they were saying that God should not save them, meaning the people of Ammonihah, that God would destroy them. And I think that's probably the more likely reading, that they are just fixated on this idea that he said that God is going to destroy us. Um, and, and so we cannot let him let them go because of this. And interesting, they're doing this before the chief judge. As far as we know, these people are Nephites, and they assumably would be part of the same nation that Alma was just chief judge of. In fact, when Alma first shows up, their argument is, well, you know, you used to be chief judge, and we had to pay attention to what you said then, but now you're just the leader of some church that we don't agree with, so you can't do anything to us now. So this chief judge could have previously been, you know, Alma's subordinate uh, when Alma was the chief judge over all the land. Uh, interesting, a twist then happens in uh, verses 6 and 7. 
And it came to pass that Zeezrom was astonished at the words which had been spoken. And he also knew concerning the blindness of the minds, which he had caused among the people by his lying words. And his soul began to be harrowed up under a consciousness of his own guilt. Yet he began to be encircled about by the pains of hell. And it came to pass that he began to cry unto the people, saying, Behold, I am guilty, and these men are spotless before God. And he began to plead for them from that time forth. But they reviled him, saying, Art thou also possessed with the devil? And they spit upon him and cast him out from among them. And also all those who believed in the words which had been spoken by Alma and Amulek, and they cast them out and sent them to cast and sent men to cast stones at them. So Zeezrom was astonished at the words that had been spoken. Again, he's realizing that the, his entire framework that his life has been built upon has some major problems. And he's starting to question that. And I think, you know, sometimes members of the church, we confront other members of the church, and you might even be in this position yourself where we've been given a framework that we've built our life upon. And perhaps you're starting to realize, well, that, that framework might be, not going to say that it's wrong by any means of course my life is built upon the same framework but maybe our understanding of that framework needs a little bit of nuancing needs a little bit of uh of fine tuning in order to bring our framework into line with the reality that goes on and the gospel is flex enough flexible enough that you can absolutely do that without having the whole thing come crashing down but zeezrom's realizing his framework needs to come crashing down and that's a hard realization to make and most people aren't willing to make that realization most people are not willing to give up their framework so rather than letting their framework come crashing down and building it anew upon the foundation of the gospel of jesus christ they're just going to attack the messenger uh, that is threatening their framework and that is what the people of ammonihah do so those that are, are righteous uh, that, that, that believed on the words of Alman Amulek, they're kick, they kicked them out of the city and they sent guys to go stone them. But their women and children were left behind. And uh, from verse 14, it seems that what the people that, of Ammonihah that are so upset at Alman Amulek were most upset about was this idea of fire and brimstone, this threatening of hell. This idea that if you don't repent, you will be in hell. You will endure fire and brimstone. And so the people of Ammonihah, upset with the threat of fire and brimstone, said, Okay, you want to see fire and brimstone? We'll show you fire and brimstone. Here are the women and children of those that believed. We've already kicked their husbands out and we've sent men to stone them. But now we're going to sh throw these people into fire and brimstone. And remember at the end of chapter 13, Alma's heartfelt, help, heartfelt plea, even with pain, that the people would repent. <clears throat> I can't imagine what must be going through his mind as he saw people that he helped convert people that believed on his words and changed their lives because of it, who were completely innocent as far as we know, but they had to endure fire and brimstone.
because he had preached fire and brimstone. And interestingly, if you do a search for the word brimstone in the Book of Mormon, chapter 14 is the last place where we see that word in the Book of Mormon. After this, the message of the book changes in some way. Certainly for Alma, he no longer goes out and teaches fire and brimstone. In fact, the next time we see Alma after this story is chapter 29, in which he pleads and he bemoans the fact that he's not an angel and can't speak with the trump of God and crying repentance to all people. I believe that this story had an enormous impact on Alma. And it was hard for him to watch. These people that he loved murdered in a painful way. In the same way that he preached, that he threatened, that he warned the people of Ammonihah that their destruction would come. These innocents were killed in the same way. And then, of course... Not only Alma, but Amulek as well. Uh, verses 10 and 11. And when Amulek saw the pains of the women and children who were consuming in the fire, he also was pained, and he said unto Alma, How can we witness this awful scene? Therefore let us stretch forth our hands and exercise the power of God which is in us and save them from the flames. And Alma said unto him, The Spirit constraineth me that I must not stretch forth mine hand, for behold, the Lord receiveth them up unto himself in glory, and he doth suffer that they may do this thing, or that the people may do this thing unto them, according to the hardness of their hearts, that the judgments which shall, ex which shall exercise upon them in his wrath may be just, and the blood of the innocent shall stand as a witness against them, yea, and cry mightily against them at the last day. It's by no means... Unthinkable. In fact, I think it's likely that of the women and children that were burned at that day were women and children that Amulek loved. Possibly his wife. Possibly his sons and daughters. And to see them murdered in such a horrible way, publicly executed in fire, must have absolutely crushed him. And we see in two chapters later that Alma ministers to Amulek, and I'm sure that's because th this event must have been so difficult for him. And as I think about my own wife and children, I just cannot imagine what, Al what Amulek must have been going through. And you can hear it in his plea to Alma, Alma, let's do something. We can stop this. And then Alma to have the patience and the faith to say, no, that's not what we're supposed to do. And can you imagine Amulek at that point? He no doubt loves and trusts Alma probably more than anyone at this point. And he believes that Alma has the power to save his family. And Alma says, I'm sorry, we can't. We're not supposed to. Have faith, they're with God. And as, you know, this story, I'm telling you, this is a hard story. I don't like this story. 
It's a disaster of a story. But it's here for a reason. It's here for a reason. And certainly one of those reasons is for us to question our own faith. If we were in the position of Alma, what would we do? If we were in the position of Amulek, what would we do? Would we stretch forth our hands contrary to the will of God to save those we love? Or would we have the faith of Alma and Amulek to say, you know what? I hate this. I don't get it. But I trust you, Lord. I trust that you know what you're doing. So, you know, as you can tell, this story gets to me. But it asks the difficult questions of each of us. And that's what scripture is supposed to do. You know, read the Job story. It's, it's my view that we have members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. 99% of us miss the Job story. It's not a story about a man that is gambled, that, that God gambles over and then, you know, with Satan and then he loses everything and then because he's righteous, he gets it all back twofold. That's not the point of the story. The point of Job, I mean, those are just the first two chapters and the last chapter. There's 40 plus chapters in between in which Job and his friends and God have this dialogue. And the dialogue is all about why do bad things happen to good people? And the answer that God gives is not an easy answer. The answer that God gives in the book of Job is essentially, you can't understand, but you're supposed to trust me. You're supposed to have faith in me. And even though I can't, you'll never understand why bad things happen to good people. Trust me that I know what I'm doing. Trust me that I'm God. Trust me that I love you. Trust me that I love the good people to which bad things are happening. And trust me that I love the bad people for which good things are happening. Your job is not to try to sort everything out and make everything even. That's my job, says God. Your job is to trust me to exercise faith in me, that everything will work out like it's supposed to, and trust me that it will. So after the, men and, after the women and children are killed, uh, Alma and Amulek are themselves taken to prison where they're mocked, beaten, challenged to save themselves, and then they refuse to answer their tormentors, after which they then rise and are delivered from their, while their enemies perish. Uh, clearly they're set up here as a type of Christ. The challenges that they endure here are intended to lead us and guide us and show us the challenges that Christ himself is going to endure. So the pains that Alma and Amulek endure are to be similar to the pains which Christ endured. And just as Alma and Amulek were heartbroken as they watched these people that they love suffer, we are to understand that in the same way Christ himself and God the Father are heartbroken as they witness our suffering, as they witness our mistakes, as they witness us sinning and undertaking actions that they know we are going to eventually regret. And so clearly Alma and Amulek here are set up as types of Christ's. Now, uh, it's interesting to note the wicked one a point to, to, to call out as they are being uh, derided and, uh, and mocked, 
uh, in verse 24, the wicked say, you know, show us a sign and then we will believe. In fact, there were, yeah, we will believe that the Lord has power to destroy you. If you show us a sign, stand up and do something, then we'll believe. And then just two verses later, it's almost comical. Alma and Amalek stand up and do something. And of course, their response is, okay, I believe you now. Their response is, let's get the heck out of here. But they don't make it that far. And the walls come crashing down upon them and they lose their lives. And that's how it is for those that do not believe. Figuratively, their walls, that framework that they've built for their lives, that Zeezrom was at least humble enough to recognize this is not going to work. I need to let it come crashing down and rebuild. For the rest of the wicked in the city, their framework all came crashing down and it literally killed them as Alma and Amulek arose. So what are the takeaways from this horrible story? Well, for me, I think it's uh, twofold. We can see challenges. Again, this is a story that challenges us. This is a difficult story. This is a hard story, and I don't like it because it asks challenging questions. I'm, of course, kidding. I, don't, I love the story. I love the symbolism. I think it's beautiful. But, you know, the actual events in the story are horrifying. The first challenge is to the wicked. And what they struggle with most is being told that they are wrong. So I think we need to consider our own lives. How do we feel when we are told that we are wrong? When we are told by righteous people that we are to change? Is our reaction to rebel against the source of the message? To say, who are you to tell me to change? Who are you to tell me to repent? Because that's what happened to the city of Ammonihah and its inhabitants. Alma and Amulek came, told them to repent, and their response was, No, you! You're the one that's about to enjoy fire and brimstone. Take that! Is that our reaction? Or do we humble ourselves and say, Hmm, maybe they have a point. Maybe I need to change. Maybe a portion of my framework of my life, of the way that I live my life, needs to come down and needs to be rebuilt. Maybe I need to make some changes. And then for the righteous people, those that don't have the challenge that the wicked do, and again, for the wicked, their challenge is they don't like to be told they're wrong. For, righteous, for the righteous people, the challenge for us is, even if we're righteous, sometimes bad things are going to happen to us. And for the people in the city of Ammonihah, the, the penitent righteous, sometimes really bad things are going to happen to you. Can you keep your faith when those bad things are happening to you? Can you continue to trust God through those challenges? And so those are my two takeaways from this story. How do we react when we're told to repent? And that really, I think, determines whether or not we are wicked or righteous. You know, speaking in very black and white, overly generalized terms. And then if we are righteous, how do we react when bad things happen to us. Moving on to chapter 15, Alma and Amulek, after they've destroyed the prison, uh, they then move uh, to Sidom, where they find those that had believed them are, are there hanging out. Uh, and then uh, let's read verses 6 through 12. Where, because uh, of those that had believed them, we find Zeezrom, who is uh, anguished because of his guilt, uh, because of the things that he has done that he realizes we're wrong because as we've talked about his framework has come crashing down and he realizes that it is time for a complete overhaul and a rebuild verses 6 through 12 
And it came to pass that Alma said unto him, Taking him by the hand, believest thou in the power of Christ unto salvation? And he answered and said, Yea, I believe all the words that thou hast taught. And Alma said, If thou believest in the redemption of Christ, thou canst be healed. And he said, Yea, I believe according to thy words. And then Alma cried unto the Lord, saying, O Lord God, have mercy on this man, and heal him according to his faith which is in Christ. And when Alma had said these words, Zeezrom leaped upon his feet and began to walk. And this was done to the great astonishment of all the people. And the knowledge of this went forth throughout all the land of Sidom. And Alma baptized Zeezrom unto the Lord. And then he began to, and he began from that time forth to preach unto the people. So I love Alma reaches by the hand and takes him. Again, this is the order of the priesthood that we were just talking about. You reach out and you grab someone and you bring them to Christ. You help them come unto Christ. That is what the priesthood is all about, serving others. You don't use it to bless yourself. You use it to bring others to Christ. And then Christ reaches out his hand and brings us to God, to the rest of God. And I love verse 8. If thou believest in the redemption of Christ, thou canst be healed. That little phrase is a sermon all by itself. If you believe in the redemption of Christ, healing is possible. You will be healed if you can believe in Christ. Uh, verses uh, 16 and 18 now. I love Alma's, uh, the way that Alma serves Amulek. And it came to pass that Alma and Amulek, Amulek having forsaken all his gold and silver and his precious things which were in the land of Ammonihah for the word of God, he being rejected by those who were once his friends and also by his father and his kindred. Now, as I said, Alma having seen all these things, therefore he took Amulek and came over to the land of Zarahemla and took him to his own house and did administer unto him in his tribulations and strengthened him in the Lord. Again, for me, this is further evidence that Amulek lost everything. Not only his gold and silver, not only did his friends desert him, but I think what is unspoken here, and I think it's probably done because of its sacredness, is that Amulek's family was burned in the fire. And so Alma takes him into his own house, loves him, administers to him, and strengthens him in the Lord as they prepare to go out and be the incredible missionaries that they now become. Chapter 16, let's uh, wrap up Ammonihah. So you have this group of Lamanites, and fast forward a few chapters into Alma uh, chapter 25. There's a group of Lamanites that are very angry. And the reason that they're angry is because there's another group of Lamanites that are called the Anti-Nephi-Lehi's, and they had converted under Christ, and they had buried their weapons of war. And so this group of angry Lamanites had come to attack the attack these people, the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, because they're angry that they converted, but then they see that they're peaceful. And so they're angry that they ended up killing a bunch of them, and they're saying, you know, we're so angry we killed some of our peaceful brethren. Let's go kill a bunch of Nephites. And the Nephites that they end up killing are the people of Ammonihah. <laughs> you know, you can't make this stuff up. The, the, the irony then of them being angry because they've killed a righteous, penitent group of Lamanites. And as a result, they go and slaughter a bunch of wicked, unrepentant Nephites. Uh, the irony, the way in which the Book of Mormon juxtaposes goodness and wickedness. 
in such black and white terms is just so beautiful. It makes for such literature, for such compelling stories, and also teaches such, such clear uh, principles and truth. Um, so, but in addition to destroying the city of Ammonihah, these Lamanites also capture or kidnap, if you will, a number of other Nephites kind of on the outskirts of Ammonihah, I guess. And so the Nephites uh, undertake a mission to go and save uh, those kidnapped Nephites. And so the Nephite captain, uh, being a man of faith apparently, asks Alma where the Lord would want them to go in order to find those souls that have been kidnapped. And the Lord tells him, he says, this is where you want to go. And so Alma conveys that to the uh, head of the Nephite armies, and they do so. And as a result, they get all of uh, the people back. Uh, let's read verses 8 and 9 in chapter 16. And they came upon the armies of the Lamanites, and the Lamanites were scattered and driven into the wilderness. And they took their brethren who had been taken captive by the Lamanites, and there was not one soul of them had been lost that were taken captive. And they were brought by their brethren to possess their own lands. And thus ended the eleventh year of the judges, the Lamanites having been driven out of the land, and the people of Ammonihah were destroyed. Yea, every living soul of the Ammonihahites was destroyed. And also their great city, which they said God could not destroy because of its greatness. So I love the irony here. You have in, in verse 9, the Nephite armies turn to Alma and say, where do we go to find these people that we want to save? And the army, the army then listens to Alma, and by listening to Alma, they are able to save every single soul. Not one soul is lost among those that were kidnapped. And then on the other hand, you have the people of Ammonihah. Alma also went to them and delivered a message to them and told them how to be saved. But they rejected Alma's message. And as a result, every single soul within their city was destroyed. So the message is very clear. If you listen to the prophet, you will be saved. If you listen and follow the counsel of men and women of God, of those that after the order of God are bringing you to Christ, if you listen to them, you will be saved. You will be healed you will return to the presence of the Lord. But if you reject that message, you will be destroyed. You will endure the fire and brimstone that Alma preached. You will not be able to return to the presence of the Lord. Now, of course, we as a church do not actually believe that hell is a place of fire and brimstone. As we see, I think it's probably more similar to the fire that Zeezrom endured in the beginning of chapter 15, this guilt that he felt that was so painful and so difficult, guilt because he had taught wrong doctrines and he had led people astray. And as a result, what, what was the actual physical consequence of that guilt? Heat, fire, a great fever had come upon him because his guilt was so heavy. Uh, so that, again, is, is what, in my mind, hell is going to be like. This guilt that cannot go away. We don't believe in fire and brimstone. We don't believe a loving Heavenly Father would, 
would, would, would create that type of environment for his children. But if we do not come unto him, he cannot take away that guilt. That is not something that he is able to get rid of. He cannot heal us from that guilt unless we have faith in salvation through Jesus Christ. Unless we are willing to exercise faith. Unless we are able to take advantage of the order of God. Receive the ordinances. Enter into covenants. Coming unto Christ so that Christ can lead us home. So Alma and Amulek then, they go out and they do more missionary work and they establish the church throughout the land of Nephi. And as we close chapter 16, everything seems to go, be going very well for the Nephites. The church has been established. They've kicked out the Lamanites. They have Alma and Amulek leading this mission to, to build and establish the church after the order of God where you have righteous men and women preaching the gospel, leading others to Christ, who then leads us back to the presence of God. And let's close then with verses 16 through 20. And there was no iniquity among them. The Lord did pour out his spirit on all the face of the land to prepare the minds of the children of men, or to prepare their hearts to receive the word which should be taught among them at the time of his coming, that they might not be hardened against the word that they might not be unbelieving and go on to destruction, but that they might receive the word with joy and as a branch be grafted into the true vine, that they might enter into the rest of the Lord their God. Now those priests who did go forth among the people did preach against all lyings and deceivings and envyings and strifes and malice and revilings and stealing, robbing, plundering, murdering, committing adultery and all manner of lasciviousness, crying that these things ought not so to be holding forth things which must shortly come, yea, holding forth the coming of the Son of God, his sufferings and death, and also the resurrection of the dead. And many of the people did inquire concerning the place where the Son of God should come, and they were taught that he would appear unto them after his resurrection. And this the people did hear with great joy and gladness. So as we wrap up chapter 16, you have a righteous people, established a church, you have... Uh, priests and teachers set up to teach the truth to ensure that the people are remaining true to the covenants that they are made they have made and they are looking forward to the son of god to christ himself coming uh, even the, even visiting the people of nephi and that's how we end chapter 16 starting in chapter 17 we'll now jump back in time to the sons of mosiah and their missions but as we wrap up Alma's mission here, uh, again, I, I, I love Alma so much. What an incredible man he is. And, and the pains that he endured, the things that he witnessed in this chapter just break my heart. And I believe they broke his too. Because he was a man full of love. And his greatest happiness and his greatest joy was in fulfilling the order of God. In bringing his brothers and sisters to Christ so that Christ could bring those brothers and sisters back into the rest of God. And I pray that we will also be engaged in that work. And I do so in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.